listening to the Polygon Podcast. In this episode, the gallery's director, Reed Shire, is in conversation with Feast for the Eyes curators Susan Bright and Denise Wolf. Feast for the Eyes, the story of food and photography, is on view now at the Polygon Gallery until May 30. Be sure to click subscribe and enjoy. Greetings. My name is Reed Shire. I'm the director of the Polygon Gallery, and I'm here with Denise Wolf and Susan Bright, the co-curators of the exhibition Feast for the Eyes, which is on now at the Polygon Gallery. And it's a delight for me to be in conversation with both Susan and Denise to talk about the show and to ask a few questions. Susan, Denise, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me in. I want to begin uh, just in follow up. You did a lovely conversation, an online conversation last week. Some of our listeners will have heard that, some won't. In that conversation, you talked about the genesis of this exhibition, which is a really, um, if I'm going to loosely paraphrase, a kind of history of food photography tracking back uh, perhaps for the last 100, 150 years. And that would be doing it a disservice uh, because of the extraordinary complexity and the, the, the richness, I think, of the exhibition. But this has been a long-term project for you. And you talked about the genesis um, on, I believe, a happenstance meeting on a street one day when you started to talk about your mutual interest in food photography. And I wanted to take you back to that spot, that time and place, and, and maybe ask uh, you to maybe recreate that conversation a little bit for us. The way you described it and the way I, and what I interests me about that was the way you described a bunch of people around you sort of slowly backing away as the two of you uh, got into the, into the nitty gritty of the conversation. And I, I, I think I share with many of our listeners the, the feeling of like when we really land on something that we want to talk about with a friend or a colleague, we often kind of lose ourselves in that subject. So yeah, maybe just give us a, a sense of what it was that provoked the conversation and what got you going on this on this idea. Denise, do you want to answer that? Because I think you tell this story well, better than I do. I was trying to find our email right after that. You know, it was in like 2012. And I came across it the other day. Um, and it was like the day after. And you had sent me a picture, I think it was a meat mountain or something, a really insane food picture. And I had written back like, I can't believe we never knew this about each other. And um, it did happen after an event that I didn't go to and it was emptying out. And there was a group of people, Susan was there and I think Sean Corcoran. And I think he mentioned something like, oh, you're both um, interested in food. And yeah, so we started the conversation. Yeah, he was the link, wasn't he? Because I had spoken to him. He's a curator at the Museum of New York. And I had mentioned to him my interest. And he went, oh, you've got to speak to Denise. And, and then he was also at this event. And he, he sort of instigated the conversation. And he used to work at the George Eastman Museum that has this amazing collection of... Um, uh, Nicholas Marai. And so I think that that ended up bringing us together. So, yeah, yeah. I think it was definitely <laughs> Nicholas Marai. And we were talking about the color of that period and emigres and uh, magazine culture of the 30s onwards. And it really was one of those moments where, you know, you kind of block out everybody else 
and you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, one thing on top of another. And then as Denise was saying, the next day, I think I just sent the meat mountain without any, <laughs> without any explanation. There was nothing. Yeah, just meat mountain. And that was kind of it. We kind of knew instantly that it was going to be a, a partnership, you know, th that we were the people to do this. And I had been looking for, I had wanted to do something and had been looking around and, you know, hadn't really found the right person. And I was like, oh, we have to, we have to do the book. We have to do the book. So then it was just a matter of like, when can we do the book? You know, I think you were finishing a PhD. You had, you had some other things going on and it was like, it took a little while for us to get started, but we, yeah. but, but we knew I was like, well, there, there we are. Yeah, exactly. And I, I had actually previously put a, a good housekeeping book in an exhibition that I did at Tate in 2007. And I was like, God, I'd really love to, to read a history of this. And at that point, I didn't really particularly want to write it or research it. I just wanted to read it. And then kind of fast forward all those years later, it was like, oh, no, I actually really do want to research and write this now. Uh, now that I've got someone who's equally, if not more passionate about the subject to, to take this ride with me, then yeah, the, now was the time. Well, and also I had seen that show at Tate Britain and had seen, I had seen the, um, the cookbooks you had in the vitrines there, or was it in the vitrine or was it wall mounted? I can't remember now. And I actually bought some of those. And then like that had sparked some of my interest too. So it was, it was strange how we, I knew you before then, and then I had kind of seen some of the stuff, but we never made this connection. Yeah. yeah. But now we've been working on, that was in 2012. I look back and we've been working on this for, and talking about it for almost a decade. And it never gets old. No, it never gets old. And actually it was really nice to see it again when it went to the Polygon, because it, you know, obviously with the pandemic, it had mm. uh, stalled. So mm. it had been a while since we had kind of thought about it, looked at it, talked about it. So when, it was up on the wall again it was really thrilling it was like mm. you know visiting old friends and it was so beautifully installed it felt oh it's got a good a resting place it's a very good resting place is it true that we're the last venue is that correct yeah yeah well i'm i'm sorry about that but also it's it's a privilege maybe to be the 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 cap at the end of a, such a long and, and obviously a labor of love and you know, I I have a question just around that interregnum, you know, and and we can talk about that in a minute. But just going back to some of the things you just you just mentioned, just around good housekeeping too, and I think that's one of the things that the exhibition does so successfully. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring it was, you know, how it tests the whole idea of what is and isn't fine art, what is and isn't, you know an artistic image, what, what visual culture is, what, you know, those distinctions between advertising and fashion photography and, and vernacular imagery, cookbooks, the whole history of the cookbook uh, medium, which we can talk about. But, you know, fundamentally that question about what could and should be included in an exhibition in an art gallery is provoked, I think. And I love that. I love when shows do that. And I guess I want to ask a little bit more specifically around, you know, what is what was the genesis of that? Was it, you know, you, you mentioned fashion photography, you mentioned cookbooks, you mentioned good housekeeping. 
is there any one of those things that sort of like sparked all of this for each of you? Was it, did you come at it from a fine art lens, quote unquote, or did you come at it from that ver more vernacular tangent? I mean, I think it was always going to be everything because food is everything. Um, it's mm -hmm. really, you know, it's fine dining, but it's also, you know, your basis everyday need. So it had to, it had to be everything. For me, the Genesis was really that that good housekeeping book. And for Denise, she has other, what, I mean, your, I mean, where was your interest first sparked? I mean, I, I definitely think Nicholas Mirai and the, that kind of period of really over the top, <coughs> insane styling and color with food um, that played out in good house, you know, that started that kind of good housekeeping trend. I think that was always my, my interest and why was so much time and energy put into styling these photographs and for who and so I think part of it was just the humor of that and also how beautiful they were and then also how interesting it is like what yeah. what were the messages yeah I think, just, I think the fact that these pictures were never chosen kind of aesthetically they were always there's always a kind of social history it, it is a social history running through the whole project and yes. that that for me is what really hooked me it wasn't really the subject of food it was the fact that they tell you so much else they tell you about gender they tell you about aspiration they tell you about the times we were living in or live in for contemporary ones mm -hmm. so i think that was that was the hook for the book and then we went on a I mean why it's everything is because we researched everything Denise and I and a picture researcher kind of researched separately and then brought all the images together when I was living in Paris and laid them all out so we just immediately began to see connections and repetitions and and so every it wasn't a case of you know, oh, we can only have art because that wouldn't make sense in the story. Well, the art makes more sense seeing what was out in popular culture. You can see how artists are often playing against those ideas. Oh, certainly. And again, that's, I think, one of the, one of the things that the show does so intelligently is that it shows even within you know what we might normally call the, the the high art realm there is this interplay that dates back really right to the beginning of photography but it, you know certainly in the 20s and 30s and you look at the man ray photograph that you've chosen for the show and that was done as an for an advertising campaign which is terrific and then you know you've obviously brought in artists like Irving Penn, Helen Newton, Guy Verdun, you know, all the work that they did for Vogue, for advertising campaigns, you know, the incredible sophistication of the commercial industry when it came to using artists. And the intelligence behind that, I think, is another, you know, kind of undercurrent of the exhibition, which I think is, is really provocative. Certainly one of the revelations for me you know, was, you know, well, it was, you know, the the Paul Outerbridge uh, images in it. Not that I didn't know his work, but just to, to live with the images, the three images that you chose for the show, really got me interested in him in a way that I never have been. 
And I'm kind of curious to hear maybe your thoughts a little bit more. The the three images for the for those listening, uh, two taken for an A and P advertising campaign of men dressed very provocatively in kitchens uh, for a coffee advertising campaign, I believe. Totally twisted, you know, images of these these men in in very you know kind of feminized roles in feminized contexts, which for the time in the 1930s, 40s, when they were taken was, was, you know, provocative to say the least. You touch very lightly on the description of those images in your book, but they are set against this other image of a cut avocado, done a beautiful, beautiful image of a cut avocado and a knife. Uh, the avocado has obviously been sitting there. It's dark and due to oxidation incredibly melancholy image very very quiet image and it's incredibly hard to parse that you know these three images or the the pair of images and this one other one are taken by the same artist and then i just kind of got in a rabbit hole with Uderbridge and started looking at him so yeah, can, you, can you talk a little bit you know there's a lot of threads there but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts more about about him and his art i hadn't really thought about the men as feminized in that picture, I guess. And I just, it just came into my mind that, you know, there's always something a little bit off about Outer Bridges work, whether it's a still life or a nude, there's something a little bit odd. And maybe there, maybe he brought that in a, in a very gentle way into those commercial pictures where it's kind of off to have the men in the kitchen. And I don't know, what do you think, Susan? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the advertising kind of what it's claiming is this coffee is so good, it can even get men into the kitchen. And I actually love the fact they're kind of really different because I think lots of photographers do commercial work and personal work and it's really different. And they try and hide the commercial work often. Mm. And so I love the fact that we've put them together and they say, look, you know, this is how, this is how people operate in the world. They have to make money especially if you're taking rather strange pictures of bruised avocados. And it's, that's not going to sell. Um, it's very like it's new to often bruised or fleshy or scratched in a way that is not typically beautiful. And he's just mm. carried that over into the avocado in the same way. Mm. And the fact that it's very few colours as well. You know, it's, it's just, if you look at it, it's only really four colours, but somehow it seems like a really colorful image. Mm. And the way that that knife is placed is a very kind of modernist, jazzy uh, way to, to make the picture more dynamic, which I, I think takes from the commercial world. So you've got all these things going on uh, within this one very still picture. Definitely, I mean, we could have done a whole like wall just of diagonal silverware. <laughs> <laughs> I think Outerbridge is playing on that, even though it's a personal picture. He's like bringing in, I don't know, a little joke from the commercial world there, I think. Yeah, it, feel, it feels it. Yeah. Well, it is a very, it is, as you say, I think a very human picture, or it feels very, it does feel very gentle. You know, if you, you're looping through the exhibition, it loops to someone like, um, oh my God, my brain has frozen, Joanne Callis. It loops to someone like yeah. Joanne Callis who is very influenced by, by Outerbridge. And the colors are of the same kind of temperature, but just turned up 
I think there's lots of really nice links that often you don't get when you're making a book. I think for me, I found those links by physically walking around the space. And if that was such a revelation to me, as it always is when you hang an exhibition, but things that I hadn't kind of noticed in the book were, were sort of brought to the fore in the hang. Well, and I think, and you you mentioned, uh, and thank you for this, the juxtaposition in, in our exhibition of the Weight Watchers cards from the 70s uh, next to the Cindy Sherman, uh, which is a picture of, you know, one of her disaster series of, you know, a picnic of a very virulently blue picnic set up with, you know, what we assume is vomit. And next to the sunglasses, which you can just see her in against these, these, crazy crazy cards that were produced in the 70s the weight watchers cards which as you say are always a highlight and people are always you know entranced by them and sort of giggling when they when they look at them there's there's a thread that i want to pick up there just about the work that was produced in the 70s but the exhibition i it does it it does lead you around in laps certainly you know from one thing to the other and there's there's no one section that sort of doesn't sort of speak to another section you know and again i think it you know it's somehow these these really interesting relationships that uh, and sometimes very personal relationships that each of the artists and photographers develop with their subject matter that i keep coming back to you know as a really provocative kind of exercise of of, of looking and learning about this one of them, again, that I just was a discovery for me was Charles Jones, early, you know, early 20th century photographer, master gardener, I guess, you know, died in, in what we assume kind of not ignominy, but, you know, just he was, he, he was, he, no one knew who he was and then until later in the 1980s when his work was discovered in a, in a boot sale. Yeah, well, it was in Bermondsey Market, so it wasn't quite a booth sale. It's an antique market, uh, but at that time, quite a you know, not a fancy antique market at all. Yeah, and you know those photographs, and there's a number of them in the exhibition, and they are extraordinary images. They're just extraordinary, done as I guess contact prints, plate glass negatives that he used as cloches for warming his seeds later and therefore the negatives have disappeared, but pictures of the vegetables that he grew in these estate gardens. And they're just pristine prints. They're just beautiful. And you get a sense of these vegetables, largely that are in the show. They also took pictures of flowers in a way that is, you know, they're sculptural and they're so beautifully printed. And I'm quite transfixed by them, so, as you can maybe tell. Um, and I keep going back to look at them. They're not very good compositions. You know, they're not great pictures. I mean, they're kind of a little bit haphazard. What makes them extraordinary is the beautiful, beautiful printing and the incredible detail, the richness of the, of the, the Silver Jolton prints that he's done. I'm just wondering, you know, because, and they're very, very modernist. And you, you've... Uh, you know, situated them next to the uh, Edward Weston, famous, famous Edward Weston image of a of a pepper. And I there's a there's a do a five hour exposure to get that, or like some I don't maybe it wasn't five hours, it was several hours to get that that look of the pepper. Whereas Charles Jones just kind of set up the camera and got 
his results from something very straightforward. Yeah, and I guess my question there is like the way that we can think about them is kind of proto-modern, but you know, are are we able to understand those images without, you know, would they be great art without, you know, the Bechers? Or, you know, what would later be, you know, work like Rouchet, you know, these kind of serializations, uh, images of typologies, because they're just blunt photographs of vegetables. Would somebody in the 20s or 30s look at them and, and, and see something interesting? What, you know, are they images that we could only look, back, look at now and understand how, how, how fantastic they were? It's a really complex question because they're very much tied up with the mystery of their finding and mm -hmm. then how they were released into the world as art through books and exhibitions. So we read them with the way that they were presented to us in the same way that someone like Vivian Meyer has mm. a similar kind of reintroduction into the world. So mm. it is, it, uh, when I say it's a complex question, it's, it's tied up with its, uh, their reinvention as well, because they were very humble objects, as you say. Yes. Whereas they were presented again in the 80s and 90s as this amazing discovery and proto-modernist. But so, Susan, didn't, did, it, didn't they get, he published some of those photographs in like a contest or something. Wasn't, wasn't there a bit of that story where some of those vegetable and garden photographs got published somewhere? Am I thinking of someone else? Um, no, I, I don't, but he might've done, I but I, I don't think so. He then, he sort of, after he finished being a gardener, he he kind of put adverts in the paper, the paper to be a photographer, and I think did take some some kind of commercial pictures of photographs, but not as far as I know. But I, you know, I might have got that wrong. So, sort of looping back to your question, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if people of the twenties and thirties would have seen them in their light because they would never have been in that context yeah yeah and, and I, don't, I don't know whether i was asking for an answer so much as just kind of posing it to myself as well i mean his images kind of raise all these questions in my brain and i i kept thinking about them and in, in the way that i you know outer bridge is another one that I, I kept thinking about and the other thing that i kind of landed on as i was looking at them was like it is an in they're interesting for the fact that He's one of the few, well, I don't know if he's one of the few, but he's one of the ones in the exhibition who is both the artist of the image and the creator of the object in the image. So there are pictures of things that he's made mm -hmm. and grown and taken evident pride in. And they, they have a, I mean, who would bother to photograph a broad bean with such passion? <laughs> you didn't exactly. love it, you I know, yeah. just so endearing. Yeah, and, and there's somebody who, you know, has spent the last, you know, kind of summer dabbling in my garden as a way to cope with the, with the pandemic. It's like, I totally understand that. It's like, you spend all this time over the course of like, you know, a whole season watching this one thing sort of come into it. And then it reaches this point of perfection and you just, you want to capture that. 
And he yeah, did. I mean, maybe, maybe we shouldn't see him as a, this is bonkers what I'm going to say. So, you know, you might want to edit this out. Uh, maybe we shouldn't see him as a proto-modernist. We should see him as a proto-Instagrammer. Proto because, well, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. That, that, no, precisely because that, a similar place. You know, exactly, and that's you know one of the, one of those threads that one you know as as I've been interviewed and asked to give my comments about the show, it's like I have often resorted to you know sort of simplified one-liners as one does to sort of describe you know it, it's an exhibition that does a very good job of showing us how we got to where we are now. And what I mean by that is like, you know, it shows a long trajectory of taking images of food and the many, many different ways of doing that. But, you know, as a way to sort of provoke the idea that you know, most people who are, are attuned to images of food are seeing them on Instagram and seeing, you know, people who are about to eat a meal or have just baked this loaf of bread and want to show it to all their friends. So I, I think that's absolutely true. It's like as a as a as a kind of proto-social media artist the one thing that i i keep i don't know why i disagree with myself though when i'm saying those words out loud because i just wonder whether or not that thread is there and i'm really curious to hear both of your thoughts i'm jumping right to the end of what i was planning on talking about but you know that's that's fine i guess i'm interested to hear your thoughts about social media about the inclusion of social media the per the exclusion of social media within the show, how one might think about, you know, Instagram and um, images on social media as a component part of this long running thread of taking pictures of food. Where do you situate this new development? Is it is it a continuum or is it this whole different thing? Because part of me thinks that we're in some different landscape now. But I do feel like there are parts of the show that are talking about uh, Instagram and social media, and that that could be like Daniel Gordon or Chris Maggio, mm. um, definitely Joseph Maida, who's made those works for Instagram. So we just decided not to put an Instagram feed in the show because you can look at it on your phone and sure. figured if the venues wanted to do that, then they could put make their own hashtags or put that up on the wall. But it wasn't necessary because we're carrying it around with us all the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think actually the fact that it is so Instagrammed is is a component of the show. It's it's mm -hmm. everyone is doing it for us. They've done they've done what we could have done, but they do it better, you know. So it's it's almost like that's where the show ends in a way. Yeah, the my picture in the gallery with this or reproducing something in the show. Yeah. So it's it's already there, and it, it it yeah. I guess that was the reason why it didn't feel like we had to be consciously including a TV screen with Instagram or a certain hashtag. Well, yeah. it's certainly what we've discovered. Yeah, it's like the the gallery has become a, a kind of landscape for fashion shoots. It's yeah, like all of those images are. Yeah, it's also interesting seeing from country to country what is Instagrammed over again, over and over again. Notice that the Polygon, there's lots of installation views, much more so than in other venues, which tend to concentrate on the pictures. And as I said in the talk, in, in Britain, it was all sausages. Um, and yeah, with you guys, it's very much installation. And same with actually with foam, because they had a very 
Instagrammable kind of installations. So you've got lots of the floor and the, and the brightly colored walls. So that's been really fascinating too, to see how, what mm. people respond to. Yeah, can and you in talk terms of like so photographs of food on Instagram and social media? I mean, it's almost like a form of of advertising or publishing in some ways. It's so public, where some of these vernacular photos of the past were privately circulated. I think social media is a is a much more public platform. So it, it takes on a different meaning. And they, I think there are aspects of aspiration that appear in social media that appear in advertising. And it is interesting that a lot of the things that end up on um, social media that people post from the show are, are actually advertising. Um, and that's a lot what Chris Maggio is making fun of, that kind of aspirational presentation of the self and what you're making and the kind of avocado toast plating that goes on um with instagram he's yeah. the opposite of that <laughs> yeah. and even yeah, i like that cindy Sher i think that does reverberate though with the cindy sherman um and the weight watchers card um mm. pairing because there you have a kind of cultural phenomenon of um it's pictures of food but it's about women's body image and then you have the kind of uh gross out Cindy Sherman, what happens when you get out of control? And so there, there's something happening between, yeah. I think Chris Maggio spoofing social media in a similar way. That was such a smart hang to put the Cindy Sherman with the, um, <laughs> the Weight Watchers. And again, it's, it's those juxtapositions which you might not make in the book because they're so far apart, but it's only when you see them together uh, in an exhibition, you go, oh yeah, okay, got it. Um, and that's what actually for me has been really thrilling about this exhibition is it never gets old because you, you're always making new connections. Well, yeah, and I, I need to give credit to Diane Evans, who is uh, works for the gallery and has, uh, you know, she and I were scheming when we saw your book about bringing it to the gallery and hoping there would be an exhibition. That's when I, I called Aperture and I asked, you know, are, are you guys doing a show? And, Thankfully, you said yes, but um, it was a lot of her input in the hang, and I think uh, um, credit to her for for that juxtaposition. And it does raise, you know, that notion of those kind of uh, um, those juxtaposition, the juxtapositions that bring out some of those threads. And yeah, certainly one of my questions too is, you know, the concentration of images that uh, you've chosen that the, uh, were produced in the 60s, the 70s, and then into the 80s, but this real, this, this heart of the show in the 70s. And you mentioned this in your talk about the Carolee Schneeman video, Meet Joy. I think there's a real provocative, you know, conversation to be had about, you know, how on earth did all of these different images all get produced in the same time period? Um, hers in the early 60s, which is, you know, kind of really amazing when you think about it. And these twin tensions around, you know, at least one, some of the twin tensions around this push to, to re-inscribe the, the kitchen as a place for women, you know, coming out of the war, as a place for, you know, these kind of normative gender roles. Certainly, that Martha Rosler's video does so so well against these 
you know, this proliferation of, of, you know, good housekeeping about, you know, what it takes to be, you know, a hostess that are running parallel to that. So very curious to hear you expand on, I think, I can't remember which one of you said that, you know, the Schneeman was the heart of the show for one of you. And I would love yeah. to hear more about that. Yeah, I, well, I think all of those things just represent the world at that time. I mean, women's mm. liberation, um, had civil rights. I mean, it was a very, very bumpy time in history and of, of which women were kind of in the crosshairs of a lot of it. And I think all that is represented just in those few pieces that you mentioned. It's just like, mm. this was a very fast moving, confusing time for women. I mean, what do you think, Denise? I agree. I mean, I think there was, there was a lot of that going on. There was also a kind of multicultural strain starting to happen. Um, and so you see that with foods of the world where the foods would stand that you'd have like a certain food, um, the timeline foods of the world books that have one dish that stand in for an entire nation and what, what that meant. And you'd open it and you'd learn about the place and the food there. And so that was also happening in the seventies. People were expanding trying to get women to stay in the kitchen but also expanding like what could be represented and where you could go and things like that and, and its relationship mm -hmm. to food specifically yeah. sorry that doesn't sound very coherent but I guess I see that other strain happening in the 70s and kind of Stephen Shore working a little bit against that and playing with those ideas of nationality and the things that shape our ideas of nationality and food is definitely one of them, region and nationality. So mm. I don't, I think there's like just so many things happening in that time period. Well, it was a time period that, you know, you know, it, there was, there was so much testing and so much, you know, kind of analysis of that. It feels in some way that we've, we've retreated or maybe it's just shifted is a better word to put it. I'm just wondering, you know, whether has, you see. Yeah, I think it has a lot of parallels with now. And I think this kind of regressive attitude to women, I think will, you know, come round. I, I really do feel that, that I'm sort of, sort of fixating on the Carolyn Schneeman a bit, that that kind of taking into our own hands, uh, mocking femininity. I think, I think we're gonna see something Similar now, I think perhaps that's why it reverberates with me so much is, is this kind of knee-jerk conservatism that we're, we're experiencing now feels, it, it feels like there's a lot to kind of rub against. Hmm. Well, that does raise the question of, you know, what this exhibition means, you know, right now in the middle of this pandemic, um, you know, and I, I think you, you touched a little bit on that in the sense of like, you know, as we've all retrenched into our into our domestic spheres, and you know, become reacquainted with baking bread is you know certainly one way to sort of think about that. It's also really, I think, tested ideas of community about certainly I, I, all of us, you know, within quote unquote the art world who were perhaps used to traveling around the world, you know, quite freely, we've all, you know, 
maybe started to question that, um, whether or not that questioning will last once we're all vaccinated and the world returns to, again, anything that we might think about as normal. I like to think it will, but at the same time, I don't know. I, you know, We might just go back to where we were beforehand, which I think would be unfortunate because I think there's a lot of questions that have been raised over the last year that are really fundamental. All of that, I guess, is a way to pose a question to you both. You know, if you were to do the show again, would you do it any differently? Mm. There were things I, I would add and subtract, or you know, if that was easy to do, we could have we could have done. There were things I thought about sending over to you when we got, you know, when I knew it was coming there during the pandemic, but I just kind of gave up and thought we have enough there to make something. Yeah. I think anything that, as soon as you finish a project, you do it differently. That's kind of the nature of, mm. of finishing something. We finished, you know, we kind of finished it a while ago, and there's been a lot of very good contemporary work since then that we could have been included. The mood has shifted drastically in the last 10 years. And, you know, we could represent that a little more, come across good historical work, beautiful 19th century work that I wasn't aware of. So yeah, all so maybe it's like some pieces here and there, but I probably wouldn't radically redo it in terms of like themes. No, things like that. So it might be bringing in new contemporary work, maybe changing emphasis here or there. Yeah, yeah, but the history's the same, you know. It's that story is still the same. So yeah, it's unlikely that that would have changed much. Well, the, you know, the, your, your focus on the cookbooks too, I think was just such a, you know, such a great aspect of the exhibition. I think one of the regrets for most of our visitors is that, that they can't pick up some of the ones that are in the vitrines and look at them. And certainly within our, our sphere, or the you know the, the fact that the book of bread is in a glass case has been <laughs> an object of you know some desire. Um, you know, there's beautiful, beautiful books in there, and kudos to you to allow you know a long array of them for visitors to pick up and read. So that's terrific. Is there a history of the cookbook that's still unwritten? But wasn't wasn't done there's a the number show. of kind of books and histories out there of different cookbooks i don't know if there's a visual history but we certainly relied on like the jemima code and some things that we yeah. had researched um to put together our list but i think one of the interesting things about knowing what we know about cookbooks and how they react to culture particularly after a big event like wars it does make me really curious what the cookbooks are going to be like after this pandemic, because it's just something on my mind, just seeing how each culture after World War II, especially, but also World War I, tried to reestablish itself after a moment of scarcity. Um, and often it, it is using fantasy items that aren't available, like sugar, eggs, and producing really outrageous um, productions to put together um, to show this kind of food and this kind of culture that aren't even available. I just wonder what it's going to be. What are the cookbooks going to be like after mm. this moment of scarcity when we haven't been able to travel? What are people going to need to aspire to, to kind of get back to quote unquote normal? And what is the normal that we're going to be put back into? If after World War II, women were put back in the kitchen, 
What mm -hmm. kinds of push and pull are we going to see culturally to get people back to quote unquote normal? And what is that normal mm -hmm. going to be? And we're going to see that in advertising. We're going to see that in cookbooks. And I am just extremely curious how that's going to play out. And I, I don't know, but I imagine we'll see some extravagant things. Well, interestingly, I was just talking to a person in publishing today about this. And she was saying that actually what they've received in terms of proposals is tons and tons of books of, on home cooking, because huh. that's what everyone's been doing, which kind of, I think, why would you want to look at home cooking? You know, I've, I've been home cooking for the last year and a half. I don't want to home cook. No one's going to buy that. No. Yeah, but because everyone thinks they can do it, you know, they're sending in all their proposals because suddenly they've realized they're a great home cook. But also, again, back to the gender, that it's mainly the women who have been the, doing the cooking. So again, they kind of see this repetition again of getting women back into the kitchen doing the home cooking. Um, but like Denise said, yeah, I don't want to look at a book on how to bake bread. I want to look at uh, Thai food or something, something <laughs> that I've missed, you know, something exciting. So yeah, it will be really interesting to see what what is published and what's picked up and what those codes are and yeah, again we might not be able to figure it out yet you know we might have to wait 10 years no then, we're know, not conscious of it yeah it is 10 years later and then but i think we didn't include that many wartime cookbooks there's a dutch one and, and about cooking with scarcity and but those things proliferated during the war and probably right afterwards and uh, probably publishers were thinking like that's what's coming to them that's what people had time to work on but what actually ended up being successful was something completely different and proliferated. You're right, 10 years from then. So yeah. we'll know 10 years from now, we'll have to revisit this. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. That's a, that's a nice place to end. I will add you know, one last comment. And it's been interesting in the reviews of the show that you know there's this kind of the this question that the reviewer will often pose to the fictional reader that you know they tell you that you'll come out of this show either hungry or disgusted or one of the two and you know many of the reviews here in vancouver picked up on that thread and said well i came out of it really disgusted or it was like i you know something like you know there was that that sense of looking at some particularly the cindy sherman or you know some of the some of the more virulent images around the play section, um, which to me is a little bit of a false dichotomy because the exhibition does both, and it really plays into uh, or evokes you know this kind of very complex relationship I think that people have with food. It is something that we need. You know we can't get away with it. We all need it. But it sometimes it you know doesn't do us uh, much service, or you know sometimes it does, sometimes it does, mostly it does. But it's like we have a very very complex relationships with things that we cannot avoid that we can't get away from, and there are a vast array of approaches in the exhibition to that you know fundamental problem. You know we're never not going to have food in our lives, so it's something that we all kind of you know address on a daily basis, and. You know, there is as many different approaches to that as there are artists um, in the show, which is a terrific thing. So um, I, I think it's a great success and I really wanted to congratulate you both for it. And it's such a privilege to be able to show it uh, at the Polygon. 
And well, thank you. And also for engaging with it so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure to hear you think about it and hear your thoughts on it as well. And I think it is, a- it is visceral and that it can make you hungry or disgusted. But often, the just as Susan was saying, it's often about something else. It's often about lifestyle. And so that isn't about necessarily hunger or whether you're going to leave hungry or, mm. or disgusted. You know, there's, there's always something else going on. So. Um, well, thank you both. Do you have another project that you're both going to work on next? Or is this... Uh... We keep yeah, trying to silly ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we keep trying to dream something up, but we can't. We can't really top food, can we? No, <laughs> you know. And then we were trying to think. Well, is there something within this that needs to be explored further? I mean, maybe it is looking ten years from now, like what it, what happens after this pandemic. Like I, I don't know. Well, we'll invite you to back, back to do a feast too uh, in ten years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, both of you take care. And uh, again, my thanks for uh, uh, such a great show and for uh, conversation today. Thank you for listening to the Polygon podcast. Visit thepolygon.ca to learn more about this episode. This podcast is produced by the Polygon Gallery in North Vancouver, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting our work by making a donation. Visit thepolygon.ca slash donate to find out more.